2: Welcome to the Friday program. I hope you got more sleep last night than I did, but I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Friday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. 340-9585 is the number for our live calls. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send questions in that way as well. If you're driving in your car, if the streets out there are slick, I've been out for a while, so I don't know, but if they're still slick, be careful. Use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button on your phone and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, three four We've had a wide variety of questions this week, so we'd love to have your calls uh, before we sign off for the week. Uh, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, a special time for us, uh, uh, Pastor Samuel Vargas, who... Uh, grew up in our church, got saved here, and grew up in our church and uh, we sent him um, sometime last year to i can't even remember how far how long ago it was now, but we sent him to uh, uh, South Anchorage, Alaska uh, to plant a church there, and they're doing it. He and megan doing great, they just had a new baby, and they're here this weekend i 'm going to dedicate the baby that we all prayed for so much. Um, we're going to dedicate the, the baby, but tonight Samuel's going to teach and share, I'm sure, his heart, what's going on in Alaska. It is a hard, hard place to be. Uh, spiritually speaking, the ground is very hard, so I would ask that you keep uh, Pastor Samuel and uh, his wife Megan and baby EJ in your prayers, but you can hear him tonight. You will be blessed. I just love this kid's heart. Uh, he's a kid to me because I'm so old. He's a he's a man but I, I just love his heart. Uh, I love the way he handles the word. He taught uh, Bible and hermeneutics in our um, academy here uh, for a long time before we sent him off. And now he is pastoring his own church. So uh, that's tonight. Tomorrow, here's another thing we could ask for prayer. Tomorrow is our annual science fair, which means there's going to be a whole lot of kids uh, experimenting. This whole place will be packed with demonstrations and science projects and we're just praying that nobody blows anything up or burns anything down. Uh, but that's uh, tomorrow uh, here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio as well. And then we finally going to finish Romans chapter 14 in uh, in our study on Sunday. Uh, and you talk about busy, I get to Sunday evening when all of the busyness in the day is done. Uh, we're going to have a, a marriage, a wedding. Um, we talked about it earlier in the week. Daniel and Jessica are going to be getting married. Uh, another young man that has grown up here at the church and now uh, not only graduated from our academy, but teaches at the academy. So these are just really, really great times. And we're excited for what the Lord is going to do this weekend. Okay, let's get to some questions. One more time, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is the first question from our mobile app. It's from Jaden. And Jaden is a student at our school and very, very special to me. He says Papa Ron in our family devotions this morning in Acts chapter eight. Now let me stop there. This is for everybody who is not Jaden. He has a Bible question based on his family devotions. Now every family's busy in the morning. Every family has a lot to do and people rushing around. Now there's actually four children in this family and so they're busy all the time but they're never too busy for family devotions. Family devotions this morning in Acts 8, we read that Simon the sorcerer believed in Jesus and was baptized, but then he sinned after offering money to Peter to give him the Holy Spirit. My question is, is Simon the sorcerer in heaven? Jane, the answer is no, he's not in heaven. And what he believed, and here's the back story on Simon the sorcerer. This is in Samaria. Um, Simon the Sorcerer saw the miracles that God was doing uh, when he saw that Philip was able to do miracles, when Peter and John would later come, and at the laying on of their hands, people would receive the Holy Spirit. Simon the Sorcerer, who was a magician, a a tricker, and um, he knew that what he was doing was manipulated, that it was fake, but he knew that what they did was real. And so he believed that the power was real. Now, Jaden, a lot of times, unbelievers believe that the power of God is real. They believe that God is real. But unless they believe personally, it has no value for them. So Simon the Sorcerer was never saved. He believed, he believed that the power was real. He believed that the God that they were preaching was real. Uh, He was baptized, and he saw that as an opportunity to get some of this power that he could make money on and instead of believing in jesus and accepting jesus personally he just believed that the power of god was real and he wanted that power for himself not for god not for god's glory but for himself for financial gain now peter was very discerning and this was the holy spirit working in peter when he said to peter give me this power i'll give you money so that I too may lay my hands on people, and they will receive the Holy Spirit. Peter looked at him, and in that moment of discernment, Jaden, he said, May your money perish with you. So Simon the sorcerer's not in heaven. He's not in heaven because he sinned. He's not in heaven because he never really believed in Jesus and accepted Jesus personally. Again, he believed the facts. There's a lot of people that believe Jesus is the Lord. They, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son. But unless you personally appropriate that belief, there's no value at all. So Simon the Sorcerer, um, unfortunately, is not in heaven. One other thing, Jane, about Simon the Sorcerer, we know from secular contributions to church history that he was a huge, huge man in the early church, but on the wrong side of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He became an enemy of the church and became a divisive factor, and in fact uh, was the cause of stumbling for many uh, who believed that he was the real deal, that he's, his power was really from God. So uh, Simon the Sorcerer will not be in heaven, and um, it's not because he didn't have a chance. It's because uh, he didn't want to change his life. You know, Jane, this isn't for you, but for everybody. You know, when people reject Jesus, they only do so because they don't want to change. They don't want to stop sinning. It's not because they can't believe. It's because they refuse to. And the reason they refuse to is because they love their sin. And Simon the Sorcerer just saw this power from heaven as an opportunity to get rich, to make a lot of money. And unfortunately, it cost him his soul eternally. And he has for some 2,000 years now been being tormented in not hell, because that's the final resting place, which won't be rest, by the way, uh, but in, in the place that we call the abyss or the abuso uh, in the center of the earth. Luke chapter 16 gives us the, um, the the picture of what that place looks like. Hope that helps, Jane. Thank you, and thank you guys, all of you and your family, for doing family devotion so faithfully. Three four zero ninety five eighty five 9585 for your live calls. Let's go to Oh, my friend in California is calling. Tanya, you're on the air. Thanks for calling.
3: Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you?
2: I'm doing really well, Tanya.
3: Wonderful. I, I have a question uh, with regards to Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac. Um, I understand that Abraham... I guess my question, Pastor Ron, has to do with the term Jewish. And I know that Abraham was the first Jew. So my question is, and it has to also do with uh, Islam, the Muslims, is from what I understand, uh, even though Ishmael was born before Isaac, uh, God's covenant lied with Isaac. And so Mm -hmm. my question is, um, my question is, if Ishmael was born of Abraham, which would make him, make them Jewish, I'm, I'm confused as to why there's dissension amongst them if they had the same father or Or what is the term Jewish? Um, I'm not understanding uh, why there's animosity. And and I I understand that that the covenant lies with Isaac, the the Jewish people. But if your father is Jewish, Abraham, Mm -hmm. um, doesn't that make Ishmael uh, Jewish as well? Or I'm I'm just confused, and I'm hoping you you can shed some light on all that.
2: I can Tanya. Thank you very, very much. Uh, to, to be a Jew, uh, it, the God's called out people um, is not just as Jesus made clear in His ministry. It's not the physical descendants. Paul speaks about this a lot in the in the Book of Romans. It's it's not just the physical descendants of Abraham, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham that are God's people. You remember when Jesus was uh, teaching. His mother and his brother and sisters went to take him, uh, to take literally the word control of him because they thought he was crazy. And and, uh, when Jesus was told, your mother and your brother and your sisters are here, Jesus said, who are my brothers and who is my mother? Who are my sisters? Those who do the will of God. So the question about belonging to God has never been uh, the physical birth. The question is, The rebirth, and and, and when I use rebirth, being born again, um, in principle, that applied as far back as Abraham. Abraham was born again. He belonged to God. Now, uh, physically, he was half Jewish and half Egyptian. His his mother was Hagar, and uh, Ishmael's mother was Hagar, and um, uh, she certainly wasn't, at least at the beginning, a believer in uh, Abraham's God. Uh, I think it's chapter 16, Tanya. You can read about her born-again experience when she, she sees the God who sees her. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. And one of my favorite studies that I, I do in the book of Genesis in, in that chapter, uh, we've got all of those archived, of course, at calvaryessay.com. Um, so Ishmael was a work of the flesh. Now, here's the picture, and this is why this story is so valuable to us. Anytime we do a work of the flesh, there's going to be strife, dissension, and a lot of pain and severe consequences. And that's what Ishmael was. Ishmael wasn't a product of faith. Ishmael wasn't the uh, the product of a promise given by God. Ishmael happened when Sarah took matters into her own hands. A long time goes by. She's not pregnant. She'd received the promise of God and... um, So she just decided, well, you know, legally, she's my mistress, uh, my servant. So if she bears my husband's baby, it will be my baby. And that was the only thing that Sarah could see. Well, the moment she became pregnant and that child was born, um, Genesis says that Sarah began to despise her. Um, She was jealous, not only did she lay with her husband, but she was also able to produce a child, something that Sarah was never able to give. So the dissension began between Sarah and Hagar. And Sarah would never accept Ishmael as her son. Uh, Ishmael was strong, Ishmael was blessed by God, God gave Ishmael lots of promises. But eternal life wasn't one of them. The work of the flesh can never produce eternal life. So when he was born and uh, Hagar began to um, sort of flaunt the fact that she was able to give Abraham a son and Sarah wasn't, well, Sarah's response was to treat her harshly, so much so that they they had to send Hagar away. Well, when Hagar ran away, Jesus met her there. That's in Genesis 16. And that division has been plaguing our world ever since. Now it's too much of a generalization to say that, that uh, Ishmael is the father of the Arab peoples. Uh, we hear that, but, but that's too much of a generalization. But um, he is a picture of trying to accomplish the will of God by the works of the flesh, and that never happens successfully. There's never any peace, there's never any joy. And so this whole idea about him and Isaac uh, is really important to study and to understand. But that was the source of the ascension. Um, Ishmael was, as I said, blessed by God. He was uh, a powerful ruler. But uh, he was not a man um, who lived his life for God. Now, unfortunately, Isaac wasn't either at least for a portion of his life. One of the things I find, and you didn't ask this, Tanya, so if this is too much, I'm sorry. But one of the things that I find fascinating about this this child of promise, this Isaac, to whom all of the promises of God were given, is that he is of all the sons the least remarkable. The least remarkable. There's nothing about just him other than his search for a wife when Abraham sent his servant Eleazar, to find a wife from his own people but, but there's just nothing remarkable Jacob has a lot written about him um, Isaac doesn't so the promises of God were his because God is faithful not because Isaac was faithful so I hope that gives some understanding, but I can recommend to you, Tanya, and to everybody to go to my study on Genesis chapter 16. Uh, its It really is a good study, fun, fun one to do, too. Thank you, Tanya. We miss you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Patrick on one of my favorite subjects. He says, I've heard you say that the Bible is the final authority in matters of church and life. While some Christians believe church tradition is just as important, which is true. Uh, Patrick, not only is the Bible the final authority in matters of church and life, and I would add doctrine, uh, church tradition has never been consistent. Now, those who loud church tradition, they do so from religious framework or religious background, and they believe what the church teaches. Well, the church has always taught. Well, you see, if we don't have a Bible as the sole authority for life and practice and doctrine, then we don't have any authority in our lives. We can go back to churches that that, that rely on tradition, whether it's a Catholic church, the Episcopal church, the, the Anglican church, or the Lutheran church. Uh, their traditions, when they conflict with the Word of God, one of them's right and one of them's wrong, and we have to make that decision. And Patrick, if you believe in... A church tradition that keeps changing. I had a question similar to this a week ago, and one of the things I said was that we we currently have a pope—not well, we, me—but the Catholic Church currently has a pope that's turning everything upside down. In my lifetime, he's the most the least rather traditional Catholic pope, and and if he is speaking with the authority of God then it means that God keeps changing his mind and the wonderful thing about our Bible Patrick is that the Bible never changes now we can interpret it differently but if we're honest and we just take the Bible for what it says then what we've got is we've got an authority in our lives that we know what to expect, we know what we're called to do, and we know how to accomplish what we're called to do. So if a church tradition says one thing, and by the way, all these church traditions, especially among Catholics and and Anglicans and and, uh, Episcopalians, which is the American version of the Anglican Church, uh, all, all these traditions keep changing, and they conflict even one with another. So how can there be any true authority in our Bible, Patrick, never changes? And if we understand that, and if we will purpose in our hearts to try to find out for ourselves, each individual, if we can really and truly trust our Bible, it'll change our lives. I've said many times in answer to similar questions, uh, my pursuit of finding out whether the Bible was true or not. It was the most important thing that I've ever done. And from the moment I found out and, and was completely, I mean, 100% convinced, my life has changed radically. I've never had a moment's doubt of my salvation. I've never had a moment's doubt about whether or not Jesus loves me and and, and wants only the best for me that kind of security is important to Jesus. It ought to be important to us. So, Patrick, find out for yourself which is true. And if we read in our Bibles and we do that God is a not-changing God, well, that means His Word can't change either. And church tradition simply keeps changing. And there's nothing quite as comforting as knowing Jesus said, take the ancient path. He said he was the ancient of days. So we have to know where we're going, and the only way we can know where we're going is to know him, and the only way we can really know him is to know his word. Unfortunately, people don't like to make the investment of time and energy to find out what's true. It is the most important thing you can do for your Christian walk, Patrick. So, there should be no question about this, and yet it is because it's much easier to believe in things that keep changing with the times than it is to believe in an unchanging God whose word never changes in a world that never stops changing. So, I hope that helps. Here is a question from Jeremy. I can get this one before we get to the break. Jeremy says, "Uh, Pastor Ron, I can't figure out how to live according to the Sermon on the Mount. Can you help me? Uh, Jeremy, you're not supposed to see the whole point in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is one of the most misunderstood passages of Scripture. Especially as we read Chapter Five and 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 even more into Chapter Six, we, we see this impossible standard. Now, if we forget that Jesus's ministry was entirely Jewish, he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came to his own; his own received him not. We're told. Well, what Jesus was doing was he was talking to people under the law of Moses. And they believed that having the law of Moses was enough to save them. And I'm using a New Testament term to, to Jews who would have understood it. But, but it meant for them that having the law of Moses, being called by God as their chosen people, was enough to get to whatever their concept of heaven was. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was telling them, you don't even begin to understand the law. You think you can keep the letter of the law? I'm saying you can't keep the spirit of the law, which is even higher. That's when he would say, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, do not commit adultery, but I say unto you, a man that looks at a woman with lust is already guilty of adultery. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was raising the stakes impossibly high as if the law wasn't impossible enough, and it was. But Jesus was raising the stakes saying not only do you have to keep the letter of the law, but you have to keep the spirit behind the law. And Jesus was revealing what that is. Now, if we, Jeremy, try to keep that spirit of the law, we're going to kill ourselves. We cannot do those things Jesus knows we can't. So what should we do? Well, what we should do then is simply fall on him. Honest enough, what what the Jews should have done when Moses came down with the law and... They said, we will do all that you have commanded. They should have said, we can't do that. And they should have called out to God for mercy. Well, we who are New Testament Christians, Jeremy, when we understand that standard, the last verse in chapter 5 of Matthew is, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to get to heaven, this is how good you have to be apart from believing in me remember this was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry nobody believed who he was except those few who followed him and Jesus saying okay on your own this is how you get to heaven be perfect well nobody can so Jesus said I will and the Sermon on the Mount should point us to our complete inability to justify ourselves before God when we get that Jeremy then we call out to the one who is perfect for help we say help us believe and he'll do that very thing so you can't live according to the sermon on the mount what you can get from the sermon on the mount is how completely unable we are to do it and how much help we need and and thus rely completely totally on the holy spirit that's why jesus said if you abide in me i will abide in you We can't do enough good, nor can we be good enough. The real value, apart from what I've just declared, Jeremy, about the Sermon on the Mount, is it shows us the heart of God, and the Sermon on the Mount demonstrates that Jesus actually did all of those impossible things. Someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek. Jesus did. He could have called down 12 legions of angels, but he refused. He went to the cross for you and for me you understand the Sermon on the Mount as intended then and only then will you fall on his mercy we've got 30 minutes left in our week 340-9585 or toll free eight seven seven six three zero five seven five seven. 630 5757 and Pastor Ron Arbaugh will be back on the other side of the break see you in two minutes
1: the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh
2: welcome back to our final half hour of the week i like saying that it seems just feels like we've accomplished so much this week i really do appreciate you tuning in every day i appreciate the questions the thoughtfulness uh, it's just um, a wonderful gift that the Lord has given me, every one of you who take your time to listen. 3409585, here is a question from Ashley. Um, I was waiting for this question. Um, Ashley says, a talk show host recently equated talking to Jesus as mental illness. Why don't Christians protest against people who insult us? Uh, Ashley, actually, I've actually been um, um, inundated. And when I say inundated, I don't mean like hundreds, but but I've, I've received several emails and phone calls about this. I don't watch the show, obviously, but the show is The View. Uh, it's a morning talk show on ABC where um, four, I think four very liberal, left-leaning um, women... Um, discuss the issues of the day and bash our president and all things conservative. Um, But but this takes it to a new level. The host that you're talking about, I actually looked up, it was Joy Behar, I think is how you say her name. Uh, She is an atheist, an admitted God-hater. And um, she was talking very disrespectfully about our vice president who said that um, he talks to Jesus and Jesus talks to him. And and her comment, I think I'm paraphrasing uh, honestly, was that, uh, well, you know, a lot of people talk to God, but when you have God talk back to you, that's mental illness. And in the process, she did insult um, every true Christian uh, who's ever lived since the time of Jesus. Uh, As to why don't Christians protest against people who insult us, Jesus, don't cast your pearls before swine. Why would we care one minute or one thing about what somebody who, who who named Joy Behar thinks about our Jesus or his followers. She has no idea. She's talking about something uh, that she has no understanding about. We should pray for her. The um, best thing we can do is talk to Jesus about her. Jesus, you heard what she said. This is a woman who's so lost. Um, in the Psalms it's written twice a fool says in his heart there is no God and she's certainly one of those fools Um, but you know what we we shouldn't be surprised this is what unbelievers do and they've been doing it from the time of Jesus they said he was a drunk uh, they said he sat with sinners Um, they challenged everything about him they made up lies about him Jesus didn't do that we don't need to defend Jesus, nor do we need to defend Christians. So, I would take that protest energy and focus it on prayer, and instead of being angry, instead of letting it upset you, just understand that that's always the way it's going to be. I said in a response to um, Tanya's question in the first half of the program, that Even Jesus' own family thought he was out of his mind, literally crazy. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. Jesus could do only a few miracles in Nazareth because the people were so familiar with him. Well, people like Joy Behar know nothing of our Jesus. And she's lost. I would actually expect her to say things like that. So save your time and your energy for protesting. Turn that into a time for prayer for her and the other women who are on that show and understand that we have no expectation that believers, or I'm sorry, unbelievers, are ever going to appreciate believers or act like believers. They can't because they don't know Jesus. So rather than be offended by it, um, just pray. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who insult you. That's the heart of God. By the way, that was given to us in the Sermon on the Mount as well. 3409585, here is an anonymous question. If God wants me to be happy, why would he forbid my expression of sexuality? Well, anonymous, you're starting from a false premise because nobody said God wants you to be happy. God promises that if you're obedient, you will be blessed. You can be happy, but even more important than happiness, your life will be filled with joy. Now, here's the thing that we have to understand. And this is, it's so simple, so foundational, and yet people in our world just don't get it. It's as though we think we have a right to negotiate with God about the rules. Here's what never is going to change. God makes the rules because God created everything. You know, Anonymous, if you build something with your hands and you put it in your home as a decoration and you invite some friend or even a stranger over and they look at that and say, well, you know, I don't like what you've done with that. Um, uh, I think it'd be better over here. And instead of being this thing, I think we should make it this thing. And you would say to them, well, I made that thing. I own that thing. That thing is what I wanted it to be. It's what I've always wanted it to be. And you would tell that person you have no right. Well, that's exactly what happens. God created sexuality. It was God who, in the Garden of Eden, yes, Anonymous, there really was a Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve really were the first two people. It was God who said, Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. And he created out of Adam, woman, Eve the mother of the living is what that means. He told them to be fruitful and multiply. That's sex. God said, here are the rules regarding sex. I gave you this gift and here are the rules regarding it. If God created it, if God gave it to us, if God created us as humans, and he did, then he alone makes the rules. You will be a vote anonymous. So whatever your expression of sexuality is means absolutely nothing to God. He's asking you to believe in His Son so that your sins can be forgiven. Jesus lived a perfect life. You don't. Nor do I. Not by a long shot. But Jesus did. And Anonymous, what He wants to do is He wants to give you His perfection, His righteousness. That's why, though he could have called down 12 legions of angels, he did not. He endured the agony of the cross, and he did it anonymous for people like you and me. Now, the only difference between you and me is that I've decided, based on my life experience, that doing what I wanted created nothing but pain. I was in pain. I caused nothing but pain to those that loved me and those I said I loved. I couldn't help it. I just kept doing it. And even though I didn't want to do it, that was just the outcome. And Jesus wants a better outcome for you. And here again is my promise. If you will surrender to Him, first believe that He is the Son of God and God the Son. He proved that. They killed Him. He didn't stay dead. No other religious leader can lay that claim to truth. Only Jesus Proved practically, supernaturally so that he was who he said he was. That he has the authority to forgive sins. Allah, Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith, Charles Russell, none of them have the authority to forgive sins. The Pope, only Jesus and when you ask him in your heart and you submit to his rules you do so out of love and out of gratitude I promise you your life will be rich and full and passionate and you will lack for nothing now I have no idea if your expression of sexuality is hetero or homosexuality but here's what I know. Jesus owns it because he owns you. Cured or healed, at least in the way it's portrayed in the world, I can promise you this that Jesus will be enough for you. And whatever He has planned for you will be better than anything you can plan for yourself anonymous, my prayer is that you will consider this carefully, honestly, from an intellectual perspective, and just say, you know what, God, you made me. You own me. You bought me. I'm yours. Hope that's the case. Let's go to Wes in Johnson City calling on line one. Wes, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
4: Hi, Pastor Ron. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you for taking my call again. I called yesterday, and uh, I'd like to follow up on the question I asked regarding do we have to put God first to be saved? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and anyway, um, I noticed uh, that topic came up after I called in on your program a few times. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to share a particular viewpoint that I caught. I got my attention regarding, uh, do we have to put God first to be saved? And um, what was said is that we don't have to put God in first place. He's already occupying that place. And then it went to Colossians 1, or excuse me, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, which says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on the things on the earth, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And the thing was, is that God's not competing with our time, with whatever it is, with our family, with our job, with our hobbies, that he's in the midst of all of that, living in and through us. He is there, always there. And so we don't have to put him in first place as uh, being uh, in competition with these other things in our life. He's already there. And I just wanted to share what i thought was a good word
2: okay thanks wes i i I, i'm I'm not sure i agree and typically when you've called we we haven't had any disagreements but this is i think important Uh, you know the apostle paul in romans chapter 7 said what i want to do i can't do what i don't want to do that's what i keep on doing and even the apostle paul was dealing with this struggle that he had um, with with being surrendered to Jesus Christ and God's will for his life. So if if the Apostle Paul can't do it perfectly, in our flesh, none of us can do it perfectly. But here's the thing that we have to understand. I said this on the program yesterday uh, when somebody followed up on, on your question. I said, you know, while we can't be perfect, every Christian should want to be. Paul tells us to aim for perfection. Jesus said, be ye perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. That's the ideal. And I think sometimes we focus so on the result that we kind of lose the process. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And 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 the thing is, unless we love the Lord, unless we're grateful to God, we haven't put him in first place in our lives. So the fact that, that and and maybe I'm misunderstanding what you said, but... The idea that, well, because Christ, who is our life, we're hidden in Christ, suggests that we already have put him first. That, that, that belies the rest of the New Testament, the, the letters to the Corinthians, when Paul writes to the Ephesians that we're not to quench the Spirit of God, that we're to pray continually to the, the, the churches in Thessalonica. Uh, there is a process, we call that sanctification, that's the theological term, where we're being made more like Jesus every day. And while I can't put Jesus first, or I shouldn't say I can't, I don't put Jesus first every minute of every day, the natural process for Christians, if we're with Jesus, is that we give him more of our hearts every day because we learn that he's trustworthy. We learn that his plan is better than ours. And so this process of learning to surrender is something that's really important. In that passage of Scripture from Colossians 3 that you quoted, when Paul says to set your hearts and minds on things above. Remember now, in that passage, he's, he's combating legalism. He's combating uh, a, a Gnostic culture that, that would deny, in, in their case, um, the, the, the humanity of Jesus Christ. They said that we, we have it just the opposite. Now, we, we deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Nobody denies the humanity of Jesus Christ. And in, in the background of all that was going on, He says, here's the summary. Here's the way you fix this. Set your hearts and minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, our heart is a place of affection. Now, this is the place that most of us wrestle with putting Jesus first. We have other things that, that frankly, become more important to us than Jesus. That doesn't mean that we're not saved. It means that we need to put Jesus in his rightful place on the throne of our heart. So our affections, we have to want what he wants. We have to love what he loves and hate what he hates. The other half of that is set your minds on things above. That's the place of decision. So the heart is the place of affection. The mind is the place of decision. And we've got to set our mind. We've got to decide that I want to be with Jesus uh, more than I want to be with any other thing. And I'm sure this is not where you're coming from, but this argument is often... Given by people who uh, I call them easy grace types. Well, you know, God doesn't care what we do; we're His. No, the, the passage you read said, "When Christ, who is our life, appears, and and the Spirit of God should convict every heart." At that point, is Christ my life, or are there other things that compete with Him, or even more important than Him? One of the things that we have here having we we have a billion babies here at Calvary Chapel, and and you know, God gives these families babies and 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 at times just like it was with abraham and isaac at times those babies become more important than than the the god who gave them the baby Uh, people get married and they focus to the exclusion of jesus on their spouse and you have to keep your priorities right if you're going to live that abundant life that jesus promised that life where streams of living water will flow from within well it has to be a place where priority matters now, that doesn't mean that when we blow it, we can't say, oh, I'm sorry, Lord. I'll give you an example. It's, a, it's an easy one today. I was going through a time of prayer this morning, and, and my mind, I, I didn't sleep much last night because I was getting w- awakened by the by the storm, and, and uh, I, I was trying to pray, and my mind was going in all these crazy places. The enemy loves to mess with me like that. And I kept saying over and over, Jesus, I'm sorry. I don't want my mind to wander. I want to talk to you right now. Well, there were moments when I lost sight of Jesus, at least as it relates to that particular time of prayer. So if there's things that you want to do that you know God doesn't want you to do, I'm going to be talking about this in Romans 14, our last study in Romans 14 this Sunday. If there are things that you want to do and you know God doesn't want you to do, but you do those things anyway, Jesus is not first in your life. If, if uh, a man or woman goes and sits behind a computer screen looks at pornography, Jesus isn't first in your life. If a guy, and I've had this exact thing happen over and over and over, when people say, well, you know, I haven't drank for, for months, uh, I, I think it's okay, God owes me one, and we go drink, no, Jesus isn't first. If we are unkind if we lose our temper, for holding on to unforgiveness, if we're bitter, Jesus isn't first in our life. We are. Our flesh is. And so the Christian walk, Wes, is, is making those decisions every single day about who's in charge. Sometimes many times throughout the day, who's in charge of your life? Is Jesus really the Lord of your life? You know, when we call him Lord, we go to church, we sing worship songs. Uh, we sing worship songs with, with Lord in them all the time. But if it's true, then we also have to examine our own hearts. And if Jesus isn't first in our life, then we've got to repent of that. The one thing that we cannot do, and I'm not suggesting this is what you're you're saying, but the one thing that we cannot do is just say, well, God's okay with this because I'm already His. The way we walk out our salvation, Paul called it, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, is to repent of our sins, to repent of those times when we rob Jesus of His rightful place on the throne of our heart. And if we don't do that, we'll never find ourselves in God's perfect will. We end up being sort of passive participants in what God's doing and we're going to get to heaven that famous seed of Christ that I was asked about earlier this week and our works will be judged and they will burn doesn't mean that we're not going to heaven we will one final thought on this Wes over and over I have people say to me well at least I'm going to heaven if I get there that'll be enough well every Christian should know that he or she's going there But the Christian that's not abiding in Christ doesn't have that kind of security. And I can promise you in ways that I can't explain that at that judgment seat of Christ that every believer will stand before the Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. If our work burns up it will be a tragedy. We will be ashamed and embarrassed. Our... Rewards that were intended for us will be given to somebody who was faithful. So this isn't a works salvation approach. This is because we're saved, to quote Paul, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But no one should ever, 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 Wes, sort of just rest on, well, God's already done the work. There's not much I can do. You know, there's other things in my life that come before Jesus. If there is, we should wonder why. And I'll close this with this one thing I tell my church all the time, that everything in your life will be richer when Jesus is in charge. Everything will be fuller. Your life will be more passionate with Jesus in charge. You will miss nothing. On the other hand, if you're in charge, sort of coasting to your salvation, you're going to miss everything, except maybe heaven. So I hope that helps. Wes, thanks for the call. We got, uh, we're got, we just inside four minutes, so let me get a question. Here's one from Danny. He says, Pastor Ron, do you believe the earth and everything in it were created in six literal days? Danny, I do, I do, I do with all of my heart with every fiber of my being the Hebrew word in Genesis is used only to describe a 24 hour day and yes literally in six days God made everything and everything in it you and I humans and Adam and Eve as our federal heads were last, the sixth day, it was then God said, this is very good. And we were His. Anything else makes no sense. And we can sort of spiritualize it away. We can try to compromise with what is falsely called science in the world that we live in. But honestly, Danny, if you don't believe this, if you don't believe that Adam and Eve were real, if you don't believe that they were the first two humans, if you don't believe in a literal six-day creation, every New Testament doctrine that we consider essential breaks apart. Now, are there some people that don't believe in a literal six-day creation who are saved? Yes, they're just really wrong. And then their faith has no foundation. Why? Because they've already compromised. So we were created, everything was created in six or days, then God rested, not because He was tired, but because He was done. So Danny, I hope that answers your question. How are we doing? A minute and a half. Here's a quick one I can do. Um... Yeah, let me do this. Uh, Paula, we forgot about it yesterday till the very end, but but let me, again, ladies, encourage you. Uh, we have a women's retreat coming up March 8th through 10th. We're taking registrations here at the church. You can also register online at calvarysa.com. Uh But all of our services, whether it's Wednesday, Friday, or the three that we have on Sunday mornings, uh, T-shirt orders are due this week. I mean, you can order online, but, but this is sort of a drop dead late. We're not the one that produces the T-shirts. Uh, but we'd love to have you go. There's going to be a lot of women. We're going to have close to 300 women who are going to be there. You will be so blessed, abundantly so. We make it as inexpensive as we possibly can. I apologize. I should have those prices, but I don't. But but you can online. If I were there. But it's as inexpensive as we can possibly make it, and we want you to go. Hey, thank you all for a wonderful week on the program. Uh, you've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. It's an honor and a privilege to have you tuned in every day. May the Lord bless you and keep you when you go to church this week. Be somebody that Jesus can use. Don't be a spectator. Be a participant. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back Monday on the program. We'll see you then on AM 630, The Word.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.